Blog Talk Radio. I hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. December 14th. I get a live applause. Look at that. And we are once again live on the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adults with cancer. We are your friendly neighborhood weekly social webcast. Finally giving that voice to nearly 5 million young adults affected by cancer. Got cancer under 40 stocks, huh? Well, get busy living because the Stupid Cancer Show is on the air. Welcome to tonight's broadcast, my friends. We are here to change the world, one chemo infusion at a time, and share all of our collective crapness. This broadcast is a program of the I'm Too Young for This Cancer Foundation, one of the nation's leading grassroots advocates for the next generation of survivors and co-survivors. It's all about us, and we are bringing the cause of cancer under 40 to the national spotlight and sticking it to the system that's ignored us for far too long. You see, the past three decades of cancer progress have failed the next generation. So there's no reason to think the next 30 years will be any different unless change happens right here, right now. So join us and be that change that needs to happen. Hell, we invented Google, Facebook, Twitter. We kept Sanjaya on American Idol all those weeks. We can do anything we want. This is Generation Cancer. It is our fight and our duty to give back to our own. We have the sheer numbers, the voting power, and the influence to change the rules because remission and remember this folks remission is no excuse for cure and survivorship is all that matters last week's show social good with guest co-host Craig Alborino from Active Cause Jason Rezepka VP of Public Affairs at MTV Nancy Loveland CEO and Chief Old Person at Do Something and Adam Hirsch Chief Operations Officer at Mashable Check out the archive at stupidcancershow.com or itunes.itunes.com for the podcast. Tonight's show, Help 2.0. What the hell does that mean? In our medical spotlight, doctors Edward Chin and Jean-Luc Neptune, co-founders of Theologica and all-around decent, respectable citizens. Susanna Fox, associate director of Pew Internet American Life Project and returning champion. Jane Saracen Khan, health economist, founder of Think Health, and blogger at Health Populi. So hello, my friends, and welcome to yet another fun, fun, exciting romp through the hay on tonight's Stupid Cancer Show, and a Stupid Cancer welcome to all of our first-time listeners here on the Blog Talk Radio Network, coming at you live from the Chemo Deck, our fabulous, fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan. I'm your host, Matthew Zachary, a 13, coming up on 14-year young adult pediatric brain cancer survivor. Joining me live in the studio tonight, as always, except for last week, our chief cancer anarchist, Jack Buffard. Hello, Jack. Hey, Matt. Did you miss me? No. I didn't think so. All right. Can you can you go home now? Yes. Bye. All right. Goodbye, Jack. Bye-bye. Jack will be moderating our live concurrent interactive chat room. So if you have something to say, let him have it and grill him with simple questions to stump his small little brain. Wait, we what? Have, yes. Yes, exactly. We have some fabulous live studio audience members tonight, in addition to Dr. Edward Chen and Dr. Jean-Luc Neptune. We have Karima Bats. Hi, everybody. And Jossie Snugs. Hey, how's it going? 
Now, uh, a real quick non secretary here. Carol's not on the show tonight, so we could talk a little bit here. That uh, Karima, we met online today. Yes, this morning to be exact. So you are officially an I2Wire of all maybe 10 hours? Do you have to, you know, simplify it so much? <laughs> you know, because 10 hours feels like 10 days to me. Okay. Did you guys meet on J-Date like Matt and I met? Yeah. <laughs> we were sexting. That's, oh, my goodness. That's good stuff. Can you forward the sex that Matt sent you to me? <laughs> I'll think about it, but I don't know if GIC feels, you know, the same way that you do. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Wait, so you guys know each other? Oh, yeah. We're engaged as of, as of two months ago. Jack's getting tossed to the curb and beaten up tonight. We're going to find Jack at the dumpster on 4th Avenue. Well, congratulations on your engagement. Yes, congratulations, and welcome to Thank the you. I2Y global support community of young adults affected by stupid cancer. So, um, obviously, Carol could not make it tonight. Once again, she will be back next week, we believe. So, uh, wishing you well, Carol. For those who are not aware, if you're living in a cave, Carol is the author of the acclaimed book, Everything Changes, The Insider's Guide to Cancer in Your 20s and 30s, uh, one of the uh, de facto staples of young adult advocacy in terms of the uh, the literature world check it out at everythingchangesbook.com it is available wherever books are sold uh sending out good karma to carol everybody and um so i guess it's time we can have a, a fairly decent conversation uh, i can actually turn and face the audience now in our new live uh, studio audience here yeah we have a bigger space we have a bigger space and the couch is still comfy the couch but no one's on the couch oh well i have, I have a show to do i'm sorry jack i tend to hog the couch don't yes I? he does he does he does so um, so let's see here. What? I was just saying, last week I was gone, but I heard you guys had a good show. We did have a good show last week. It was um, good because you weren't here. That's what I heard. Yeah. I heard the feedback was tremendous. In fact, I heard it was the best show you've ever done. It was one of our most listened to shows, and I have to thank the folks at uh, Mashable MTV and Do Something for really plugging it hard uh, through, the, uh, through the interwebs uh, for the entire week. We had a lot of live listeners. We introduced the show to a whole bunch of new... Uh, New people out there talking about the young adult movement and our value and our influence. The show is about a social good, how, how using utilities like Twitter and Facebook can actually be used for not evil. And uh, I, I think the most interesting counterpoint to the conversation was when we talked to Jason from MTV, their new initiative, um, it's funny you said sexting before, is on uh, Ooh, sort of cyber abuse and uh, cyber bullying and how these days a lot of the teenagers – those crazy kids are actually using the interwebs to bully each other and to take pictures of their privates and text it to each other. And I sound like an old man. If anyone, anyone under 18 listening, just, just call me Gramps at this point. My probation officer told me I'm not allowed to sex anymore. Okay. That's not news. No, I, I know, but <laughs> I, was, I was just joining. The, I've, I've wanted to contribute my side of the story. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. So, but I, I just found it really fascinating that that's MTV's new uh, cause, and um, it, it demonstrates how you can truly use social networking and social media for social justice. Whatever happened to the days where you would just call someone's house and then hang up when they answered? Or breathe heavy and then just hang up, yeah. Yeah. It's like, now it's like no one even has landline phones anymore, so it's like everything's traceable. No, well... I, I, we, we've talked about this on the show a whole bunch of times before, but, like, some comedian does some bit about how, like, it, it's like the boomer-to-us version of us-to-our-kids generation of, like, when I was a kid, we had to walk to school, and yeah. we had leaded gasoline, and our cars, you know, had white wall tires. Well, these days, like, well, when I was a kid, young man, uh, we actually had to walk to the telephone to pick it up. Right. We had to just pick up the phone and hope it wasn't a douchebag on the other line. We didn't have caller ID. Right. You know? And we had to give directions we had to give directions to our house or wherever we were because we didn't have a GPS that plugged in. Right, right. So but that goes back to the whole what you're saying. Like today it's so much easier to do to to conduct douchebaggery. Right, so to speak. Like new media douchebags. New media douchebags, exactly. You know what really bothers me about these, these punk kids these days? Like like Dory Plate <laughs> is, is the fact that, like, all they have to do is Google, like, like they're assigned, like, a research paper, like a thesis or something like that, and all they have to do is Google what their paper is on, and they can have their paper printed within, like, 10 minutes. 
whereas we had to walk to the library and hope that somebody wasn't using the encyclopedia that we needed right, so exactly. that we could uh, you know, get our paper done. Yes, the old and physical manual 80-pound volume R right. of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Right. Does anyone listening have any idea what we're talking about? <laughs> yeah, this is like a trip down memory lane where Matt, where Matt and his encyclopedia were pushed into lockers on a daily basis. I, uh, down the steps, no lockers. Oh, yeah. When you had your big fro. All those scars. All those scars. Before you acquired your tumor. Exactly. Exactly. Well, all right. Well, let's let's get to the news. I'm getting. Yeah, that's jacked. my favorite part. All right. So let's let's cue up the news here and uh, let's see what we got to do. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is Eye on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Alrighty. During this part of the Stupid Cancer Show, we announce worthy news stories to our adoring listeners who inform them about the latest and greatest in young adult programs, services, events, projects, and other stuff. If you have something you'd like to hear broadcast during this part of the show, please fax it to us at 877-794-6902 or send it to Jack Buffard at jack at i2y.com. That's jack at i2y.com. And now the news with Jack Buffard. Thanks, Matt. Here's your stupid cancer news. Head on over to events.i2y.com. Events.i2y.com is the official social calendar of the I'm Too Young for This Cancer Foundation. We have an upcoming event that we're very excited about. It is uh, on the 18th. Is that Saturday or Friday? The 18th? I have no idea. Friday, the 18th. No idea. Los Angeles. Turning towards the sun. Friday. Turning towards the sun. A benefit for young cancer survivors. It's being held at Molly, Molly Malone's. In Los Angeles, California, tickets are $10, and it's a night filled with awesome music while raising money to benefit the Auntie Young for this Cancer Foundation. And I'd li- if I may, I'd like to give a, a special shout-out to our LA co- Events Committee, uh, Andrea Stratton, Brandon Schott, Mike Pena, and Stacey Owens. You guys rock. Thanks so much. So, survey. I2Y.com. Everybody needs to go on there tonight, during the show, after the show. I don't care. Survey.I2Y.com is the Stupid Cancer Survey Part 2. One in eight survey takers out of the first 400 submissions will receive a $50 iTunes gift card. You must be 15 to 39 years old to enter and be directly affected by a diagnosis of cancer. So again, Survey.I2Y.com. Next up, we have 70K.org. That's the word 70, the letter K.org. There are approximately 70,000 people aged 15 to 39 diagnosed with cancer every year. For over two decades, there has been little or no improvement in survival for this demographic. By signing this bill, you are supporting the Adolescent and Young Adult Cancer Bill of Rights to be established as a standard, of, a standard for care to, re, to meet the needs of this underserved population. Moving on to cancer care programs. The young adult groups that are active and running at cancer care are as follows. Living with cancer. Life after cancer. Young adults loss of a parent, young women with breast cancer, young adult individual grief counseling, young adult caregiver for all diagnoses and relationships. Head on over to cancercare.org for more information. Are you a young adult cancer survivor who would like to begin an exercise program? If so, join Santina Horowitz for Survivors Step Into Motion. You can contact Santina at area code 401-793-8124. Next up, and there's no pun intended there, Matthew, we have Live On, Sperm Banking by Mail for cancer patients. (laughs) Trust me, guys, do not do what I did. You can't just throw some sperm into an envelope and mail it to the fertility clinic. You need a Live On kit. For more information on Sperm Banking by Mail, please go to www.liveonkit.com. Live Sperm Banking by Mail is made possible by our friends at Fertile Hope, and I would personally like to send a big thank you out to the law firm of Dewey, Scroom, and Howe, for clearing up my embarrassing situation with the United States Postal Service. And finally, I want to send a shout-out to Chris Alford. He is a 16-year-old who's going to have his tumor removed tomorrow morning. And I just want to tell Chris, we're all thinking of you, pal. Yes, and we're, sir. And we're sending a lot of good energy your way. So hang in there, and you will rule over stupid cancer. Yes, you will. Keep us posted on how you're doing, and uh, good luck tomorrow, man. You're a trooper. And that, my friends, is your stupid cancer news. All righty. I love you, Dory. You know, it's interesting. Like, we, we've had live studio audiences before, but they've never clapped. 
because they've never seen such a performance like the one I just gave. Yes, yes. Acting! That's Acting! Right. All right, well, as much as it disturbs me to have these guys on the show, let's introduce them. Doctors Jean-Luc Neptune and Edward Schinner, co-founders of Theologica, a web-based service that helps match patients with clinical research studies. They both met as, as internal medicine residents at Columbia Presbyterian, but were the two guys who left medicine to pursue business. Evidently, making a nice living was not in, up their alley. J.O. went on to get an MBA from Wharton, and Ed joined a health media startup back in 2000. They then reunited. Reunited and feel so good. At Gerson Lerman, that's like a disease. The Gerson Lerman Group. I just pissed off Mr. Lerman, didn't I? A leading expert network company in New York City. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, doctors Jean-Luc Neptune and Edward Chin. Hey, what's up, Matt? How are you, gentlemen? Good evening, Matt. Thanks welcome. For having us. Welcome, welcome. Hey, I just noticed that, like Tiger Woods, our guests are Belgian. <laughs> I was wondering how long we could go without mentioning Tiger's name. Not are you, far. Evidently. Are you both Blasian? Well, together we're Blasian. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm 0% Blasian. <laughs> Only together. Oh, my goodness. Well, I will put, out, put it out there to the audience out there to the universe that I love these two guys because they are 30-somethings who are doctors. And there is no more relevant audience to the young adult cancer movement than young doctors who get it, that are hip, that are social media savvy, and that appreciate the relevance of disease disparity within their own generation. And when I first met them, that was my pitch to them, but they were already kind of sold. And I, I found it so spectacular that there is an entire culture out there of residents, interns, fellows, and full practicing doctors and family medicine practitioners who are under 40 and are our demographic and completely get it, and they're awesome. So I want to thank you guys for doing what you do. I think you, you, you took a brave step by leaving the medical world to enter the business world. But I'd like you to each talk a little bit about what that was like, how that decision was made, and maybe what disenfranchised you about the current state of, of medical training, medical care, and uh, what it is to be a professional a provider these days. Uh, so this is uh, Jean-Luc. Um, I would say... You know, Ed and I were probably very similar during residency. I think we, we both loved taking care of patients. We loved doing research, but realized that, you know, there was a lot of interesting stuff going on in the world, right? I mean, you know, we were doing our residency from 97 to 2000, sort of the height of the Internet bubble and the Internet boom, and we saw a lot of interesting things that we can do, and I think that's part of what drove us both to pursue the various things that we pursued. I, I, I sort of originally saw myself being a, an administrator guy, and I thought I could get an MBA, and I just realized after I got the MBA that being an administrator was like the worst thing I could ever do, and that there was a lot of really cool technology that was out there, a lot of really interesting things that could be done uh, with the web in particular, and we did a lot of that stuff when we were together at GLG, and the genesis for Helogica was that there's this huge problem with getting patients into clinical trials. People have been using the web for 15 years, right? The Netscape IPO is, what, 1995? And to this day, people still aren't using the web effectively to find patients. So that was the genesis behind the idea, and that's how we got together. And, Ed, how much does JL pay you to be his friend? Well, it's all an option, so uh, <laughs> yeah, hard, to, hard to determine what the value of those options Love it. are. <laughs> But, uh, you know, the, the JL's right. I mean, I think that he and I were both, you know, two of the individuals in our residency class that really, you know, were frankly enamored by what was going on outside of the hospital walls and in the interwebs. And, uh, you know, I, I made a crazy decision to join one of these companies back in 2000 and uh, really had a great experience there, uh, kind of basically doing health videos and, you know, back when nobody had broadband and, you know, you either had QuickTime or Real Player or Windows Media Player. And, you know, we just made these clunky videos. And uh, suffice it to say, I think that was a little bit ahead of its time. But then, you know, we learned some interesting uh, processes and, and really got the entrepreneurial experience at uh, Gerson Lerman Group, uh, an expert network company. And then from there, we decided to go out and strike out on our own and uh, started up Hilogica. Um, you know, the crazy idea of actually trying to use the web to facilitate the matching of uh, patients with uh, clinical trials. 
and based on their health profile. And uh, you know, this is an effort that's been ongoing since the genesis of the web, and um, it's been challenging. But you know, we see a lot of promise in this idea, certainly uh, if not now, in the future as well. Well, let me let me just put this out there then. The um, it took I'm going to go out on a limb here and say it took a good probably ten years for the consumer influence of of mass media, which is now considered the internet. Uh, affected social change, affected corporate behavior, affected uh, business trends and, and analytics in that in this m- multiple vertical sectors. The health version of the web movement is pretty new. It's probably only maybe a year or two or three old. Um, innovation and innovators always pay the price for letting other people make money off their failed ideas, <laughs> and you know I'm one of them. And you clearly, you know, you set the bar and then someone picks it up and you're, you look at, um, I mean, uh, what the, the Greg Kinnear movie with the wiper blades? I mean, what a great movie that was. You know, there you are. Perfect example. So you guys are innovators, you're pioneers, you see five years down the road. Do you, do you envision the potential that the, the consumer market yielded influence over the corporate market? To parallel in the healthcare, or is the healthcare universe so such a different animal that it's going to take more than that because there's much more government involved? Uh, good question. I mean, I, I think as you alluded to at the beginning, uh, in five years from now, maybe it's ten years. Who knows? Maybe it's twenty years. I think that people will use the web as an integral part of taking care of their health. I think that people are doing that now, right? I mean, even if you go back to the beginning. People have been using, let's say, services like WebMD to get information, and increasingly people are starting to use online services to book their doctor's appointment or to you know, track their medications or to track their spending, um, and I think that that's becoming an integral part of our lives. I mean, everybody's on the web. Even my parents who are in their 70s are using the web, and I think you'll see continued progression. I think the one thing that Ed and I have found is that going back to what you were saying, is that there are a lot of really big entities in this space, right? Health insurers are huge entities, right? You know, uh, pharma companies are huge entities, and they all have their own interests, right? These vested interests and worlds that they control that they don't necessarily want to see change. And I think part of what we've been trying to do is in many ways disrupt that world. And what I would say is that, you know, those companies are responding appropriately, right? They either ignore you or they try to destroy you, right? Right, exactly, exactly. And I say that to some extent, you know, Maybe it's not so much the consumers who cause the world to change as much as it is that these big dinosaurs approach extinction and then they die. And as sort of, you know, as they die and as you have these, you know, huge Tyrannosaurus rex replaced by these little furry mammals, maybe you really see big aggressive change that occurs. But there's definitely the patient movement out there. I think Susanna will talk about that. The patients are online. They're jazzed. They want to use the web for their stuff. For their health management, and I think it just comes to these big organizations and the incentives that they have to prevent change, and we have to sort of move beyond that. That was very anthropological of you. <laughs> Ed, any comments? I want to get to Suzanne in a second. Yeah, just I mean, uh, totally agree with John Luke. And uh, healthcare is a different animal. It is very much a different beast. Um, it's it's not really a free market in the traditional sense. It's like going into a store, buying something, but, you know, you have somebody else pay for it. Um, and, you know, and obviously that's an ongoing discussion nationally uh, right now in, in Congress. Uh, but, you know, I'm shocked that I can't book an appointment with my doctor online. I can get a plane reservation. I can book a hotel. I can find a restaurant. But I can't book a, a doctor's appointment. I mean, that's ridiculous. In my humble opinion, it's absolutely ridiculous. And we'll give a shout-out to our friends at ZocDoc because they're trying to solve that problem, and they're doing a really good job of it. Um, but that's, you know, that's an example of the movement that's occurring now. And uh, you know, with the folks, you know, our friends at Health 2.0 Conference, um, really raising the awareness of the tools that are available. It's not a technology problem. It really isn't. Um, you, know, you can upload images, your EKGs, your lab tests, into any, you know, you know, Dropio or Basecamp or whatever it is. I mean, the, the technology exists. It's getting the system to align their incentives with the patient uh, and vice versa and with the physicians, frankly. And hopefully when, you know, as JSA is at 5 to 10 or 20 years, um, the system will enable that to happen. 
in the meantime, I think really people are going to be using their own homegrown systems, be it store stuff on Facebook. I mean, I, you know, I see people putting up their dental X-rays and their you know broken finger X-rays on X, uh, on on Facebook, and and that's that's really their medical record, and and it'll be there. So, uh, you know, it's it's going to come at a cost to the early pioneers, but you know, hopefully in in the next ten to twenty, um, that disruption will have occurred. All right, I like that answer. Jails was better, but I like your answer. All right, let's let's head on over to our. Our first, uh, our first guest here. Alrighty, Susanna Fox is an associate director of the Pew Internet Project, a nonprofit research organization which studies the social impact of the internet. Technology's impact on healthcare is her passion but she also tracks generational differences plus issues of privacy, security, and identity online. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show one of my favorite people in social media. And that's because she's on payroll. Susanna Fox, ladies and gentlemen. Hello, Susanna. How are you, my dear? I'm great. I was, I was kind of hoping for like a foxy lady theme song or <laughs> barracuda or something. Um, next time, I promise. Okay. So I want to know about how you got into this crazy mess. Uh, and working in nonprofit, why would you want to work in nonprofit? <laughs> and, and how did you get started? Talk about um, what your interests were. I mean, well, first of all, did you go to school for this, or are you one of those 90% of college graduates that went for, like, you know, uh, you know communications, you're doing right. communications, but not really communications? Well, I studied. Um, I started out studying French literature, um, which my dear dad um, said was very encouraging, and said, "Well, when you're a waitress, you'll be able to pronounce the wine." Um, and nice. Then, yeah, yeah. Um, he's very supportive. Cancer survival, by the way. Um, and then, uh, and then I switched to anthropology, which um, basically uh, taught me to be curious and ask questions, and that's most of what I do now. Um, and in terms of how I got here, I um, was really lucky. I graduated from college um, and got a job um, with a startup firm that turned out to be Real Network. And so I was in on sort of the ground floor of looking at the, the rise of the web and, and sort of tracking where things were going to go. And then I was a journalist for a few years. And, um, and then I went .org right before the dot-com bubble popped. It was right 1999, 2000. And uh, to be perfectly honest, I was pregnant with my first child, <laughs> and I wanted to get off the dot-com roller coaster. And, um, and research was just the perfect place, and uh, it's actually been a really, really great run um, to, to be at the Pew Research Center. Well, again, I mean, well, congratulations on dodging that bullet, first of all. <laughs> um, what I find most fascinating about Pew is you guys come up with the most incredible statistics and analytics on what's going on. Um, I have a friend who's a total sports nut, not you, Jack, just another friend of mine. We used to kid around. Um, you ever watch, like, Stump the Schwab? Like, the, the questions they ask that guy are just crazy. And, yes, I know what Stump the Schwab is, Mr. I make fun of Matt because I don't know he knows sports. Someone was up at 2 in the morning watching ESPN 4. <laughs> well, ESPN 8, the Ocho, right. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, there are questions out there like, you know, uh, like who, was, who was on deck when Babe Ruth hit the ball over the fence in 1926? No, no, it's not even that. It's like, you know, what color socks were worn in even-numbered Super Bowl years where the, the team that won operated in like a hemisphere near New York you know, like it's like the most ridiculous statistics, and you guys have those. Like, <laughs> about the internet. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's incredible stuff. Now, talk, talk about the origination of Pew. It's been around for a while, right? Yeah. So, so it actually um, the the story goes that Rebecca Rimmel, who is the head of the Pew Charitable Trust, the family foundation in Philadelphia that gives us grants, um, was sitting at an internet conference and um, was growing increasingly frustrated with all the speakers who didn't have any data about the Internet's impact on society. 
and um, they all wanted to talk about the business impact of the Internet and how everybody was making money, and, and it was really changing the business world. And she saw an opportunity to have some research look at the social impact of the Internet. Um, what is its impact on education, on families, on healthcare, on communities, on government? And, um, and so we um, got our first grant and did our first survey in um, March 2000. And it's been pretty much the same group of us. It's a very small project. There's only seven of us. And um, it, it was really fun at the beginning because we just sat around and came up with crazy ideas of things we wanted to do survey. Um, and they told us that they never really wanted to see a research agenda in advance. They wanted us to be opportunistic, um, which is why we've come up with this very wide-ranging, is a, is a nice way of putting it, <laughs> opportunistic research agenda. And then it's kind of settled down into, into what we do now, for instance, lots of research on healthcare. So I, I have a question, a specific question. I guess this pertains to all media, and I'm curious to know if it is still relevant and if it is still pertinent and if it translates over to the health world as much as it did in the, the sort of standard consumer social media world, which is that 90% of all the content is actually produced by only 10% of the membership of the internet. Is that true? It's what we're seeing um, in uh, politics, yes. It's also what we are seeing in health, except the ratio is more 80-20, um, that 20% of the people um, who are, are very active, they're the ones who are commenting on blogs, they're um, reviewing doctors, they're rating hospitals and medical facilities that they um, stay in, they're the ones who are, um, in, in terms of politics and the election, they were the ones who were sort of the center of their network in terms of um, sending out the YouTube videos and, and making sure that everybody knew, you know, where to be in, in terms of, you know, the next voter registration drive. And so there's always going to be a small group of people who are very, very active and the question is, how many people are following them? How many people are listening to them and reading what they have to say? And that footprint of influence turns out to be really important. We saw it in the elections, um, and we're also seeing it in healthcare. Yeah, and unfortunately, we're also seeing it in pop culture. Like, you know, like with Twitter, for example, 90% of the content is generated by 10% of the users or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, you have people like Ashton Kutcher and, you know, uh, John Mayer and Demi Moore who have like two, like two and a half million followers, but they're tweeting stuff like, I just had a ham sandwich with a glass of water and stuff like that. <laughs> right. And it's like, it's like they have millions of people following them, but the content, like most of the content is just irrelevant, everyday BS that. I personally wouldn't care to know about my favorite celebrity or whatever. But that's the kitsch factor of it. Like, people want to know Ashton Kutcher just had a ham sandwich and some water. Right. And, and the reason why he got so many followers was because he wanted to uh, become the, the most followed person on Twitter. And he put this thing out on CNN that if he became the most followed person, then he would ding-dong ditch Ted Turner's house the next time he was in Atlanta. Yeah. And then, like, millions of these, like, you know, teeny boppers or whoever just started following him, and he had, you know, two and a half million people and went and rang Ted Turner's doorbell. Like right, that. but Susanna, that comes down to the, the purpose of value. What is the value of content? And have you run any specific research reports? I see you have a social life uh, of health. Uh, is that about value? Can you talk about that? Yeah, so, so what we see is that while a lot of, a lot of, Twitter and a lot of social media can be really trivial. There's always going to be um, niches and, and channels um, where people um, want to dive deeply into a topic. And, um, you know, it's the long tail theory. So, so you know, there's Jimmy Moore has two and a half million followers and, and, you know, Stupid Cancer has however many, you know, in the hundreds or low thousands. What do you and, got, like, yeah, like 3,500 or no, something? No, 4,200. 4,200. And it really should be higher, right, except it, it, it should be higher because everybody who, in the demographic who has cancer should be following you. Um, and yet it turns out to just be it's, you are the perfect 
person to follow if you're interested in this subject matter because you are going to be the source of news. You are going to be the source of gossip and the source, frankly, of fun um, amidst this hell. Um, and, and then maybe people will move on. Um, and so it kind of, the Internet is perfect for um, just in time someone like me information. You don't know that you're going to need that information until you really, really need it. And then you search for it and you find it and you use it and you move on. And what we see in our data is that for the most part, the Internet is having a positive effect, um, that people say that they have been um, helped for the most part by information they find online. And it's really a tiny group, it's only 3% of adults who say that the Internet has um, been harmful. Um, that, that, you know, while there's a lot of talk about, oh, there's false information and, and bad information online, for the most part, it really is a positive thing. People figure out what's the good stuff, and, and that's what they take to heart. Well, let me ask you this question. You raise an interesting point of, of, uh, of discussion. Yeah, we have 4,200 listeners, and Livestrong has 900,000. I found out that, Doug, that you'll find this. I don't see this as a negative or a positive. I just thought this was very interesting. Uh, Doug Ullman, who's the Livestrong CEO of Twitter, um, was um, he's on a list of people that when you join Twitter, you're automatically friends with. So regardless of whether you want to be friends with him and Ashton Kutcher and CNN or whatever, you're by default friends with X amount of people. So that said, that's probably, you know, it's, it's a skewed value as to how many followers he has. But Lance Armstrong has like 2 million followers. My question, again, is, is about do you think that there is a disparity between the percentage of followers, say, that we have who are actually getting value versus the percentage of followers that someone like, you know, Doug or, or Livestrong or, or other sort of entities would have versus, like, if only 10% of the people that follow are following because they care or 90% are following because they value the content? Well, I think that's that's what's so difficult about about measurement. Like you could see that that there's you know you have fewer followers, but maybe they're more dedicated, or maybe because it's a more niche um, following, they're they're more um, likely to take action, um, and they're more passionate. And and so that's that's what's really hard when you when you see um, you know traffic numbers or follower numbers. Um, and why I try not to pay attention to a lot of that stuff, and I'm sure you're the same way. You just keep doing the work that you're doing. And if people find it useful, great. And if they don't, goodbye. Hi, Susanna. This is uh, Ed speaking. Um, just a quick question. What, what are some intriguing data uh, for you that perhaps is unexpected or some emerging trends that you see in the surveys that uh, your group conducts? Well, one of the things that um, I'm working on right now is a special survey. We did a, a national telephone survey, um, and we asked people about um, five chronic diseases, and one of them is cancer. Um, and so I'm going to be coming out. It's probably going to be January that I bring this report out. Um, but what's really amazing is that people um, who are living with cancer um, are likely to be online, more likely than the other disease groups. Um, and they are very likely, actually, to um, join discussion forums online. Um, and the Center for Studying Health System Change um, has done some studies which parallel this. Uh, we look at social media. They look at more offline um, and traditional media. But in both cases, it seems like a cancer diagnosis flips a switch in people. Um, and no matter how old they are, how old somebody is, a cancer diagnosis seems to be one of those imminent threats that people, um, you know, whether it's the person with a diagnosis or a loved one, kind of decides to become a superhero and, and try to save a life. And what's um, neat about your group is that, um, for the most part, unfortunately, people with chronic disease are offline. Um, because they're older, because they're sick. Um, but in terms of young people, we're looking at, I mean, it's like 93% of people in their 20s are online. And so if you combine this very wired-up generation with a, a, 
a crisis moment, um, then you can really start to see the, 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 the volume turned up. You know, it's, it's, it's going to go to 11. <laughs> and right. people are going to be able to access all of the information that they want and, and share information with each other. Um, it, it, that's what, I mean, frankly, out of all the groups that I'm studying, Cancer is the most, um, it's the one that's kind of a good news um, story. Um, frankly, the other groups are much less likely to be online, um, much less engaged. Um, and, and so, you know, cancer's special. <laughs> and um, it's, it's one of those things that um, it, it does seem like a cancer diagnosis is very, very different from, let's say, a diagnosis. Do you have specific um, data on various diseases, or is everything sort of a general health sort of metric? No, so so I have specific um, data. Um, basically, can look at you know, for example, three percent of adults say they're living with cancer in the U.S. Um, and of those, about um, let's see, two thirds go online compared with 81% of adults who um, don't have a chronic disease. Um, people who are living with cancer are very, very likely to have looked online for health information. Basically, it's 9 out of 10. Um, and so, you know, that's a situation, again, it's more evidence that um, if you have Internet access and you get a cancer diagnosis, you're very likely to um, become one of these e-patients um, that I write about. Um, and cancer patients, again, especially, are likely to be engaging in discussions online and, and starting to use social media, um, whereas other, uh, the other disease groups are less likely to. Well, I mean, we have time for one more question, and I think this, this goes back specifically to this notion of generations. Um, have you conducted any specific studies with regard to diseases that occur um, in the younger communities, like juvenile diabetes, or um, or even like a you know is suicide considered not suicide like suicide prevention considered you know or, or mental illness or depression um, even cancer for that matter of course in the younger communities and their level of social media engagement, trust, value, and content provisioning as compared to, like, the 96% of people who get diseases over the age of 60? That's what we need to do next. The, um, for better or for worse, when we do a study, we can afford to essentially do a study that's about 2,500 to 3,000 people. And so within that sample size, for example, I only had 80 people who say they're living with cancer. So I can't do much statistical analysis breaking it down by age. Right. Um, but what I also often do um, is I use the quantitative data to sort of paint with broad strokes. And then I do a qualitative survey, like I've done survey of um, members of the ACOR listserv, the ACOR. Sure. Um, and... Um, this time around, I did um, a, a special survey of people who are members of communities on Health Central and patients like me. And um, in that sense, I'm able to sort of start to get a picture of some of the um, more orphan diseases right. that wouldn't necessarily be picked up in a telephone survey. Very interesting. So, I mean, just closing out the segment here, what, what's, uh, what do you guys got on the, uh, on the front burner, and what can we expect from Pure Internet uh, for 2010? We're going to still do, um, we're really excited about looking at decision making. Um, we want to look more into how people are using the Internet to um, make decisions in their lives um, of all kinds. And um, we're also going to refine our questions about Facebook and uh, MySpace Twitter, because one of our significant challenges is that as the technology keeps changing and how people use it keeps changing, we keep having to change our survey questions. 
So if you ever see a question that you think is incorrect or isn't capturing an activity, um, contact me on Twitter, email, Facebook, however you can find me. And the website again? PewInternet.org. There you go. Susanna, thank you so much for being our guest. Good luck, and we'll talk to you soon. Maybe I2I and uh, you guys can do some business together. Thank you. All right. Susanna Fox, everybody. All righty. And now it is time to bring out our second guest. James Saras and Tan, returning champions of the Stupid Cancer Show, is a health economist and management consultant who has worked with healthcare stakeholders for over 20 years. Her projects typically focus on scenarios, strategic and business planning, forecasting health policy analysis. She founded Think Health, a strategic health consultancy, in 1992 after spending 10 years as a healthcare consultant for firms around the world and now also writes a column for iHealthBeat, an online publication of the California Healthcare Foundation. Her now infamous blog, Health Populi, has become the gold standard for thought leadership at the nexus of healthcare and technology. Please welcome back to the Stupid Cancer Show, my E. Yenta, Jane Sarazenkhan. <laughs> We have e-patient Dave, and now you're, you're e-yenta Jane. I love it. Thank you. Well, that's appropriate. It's Hanukkah, after all. Yes, it is. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah, and happy becoming a father-to-be. I don't know if your listeners know this. Yeah, I've got, uh, my wife has two buns in the oven. It's very exciting. That's exciting. So I'm going to have siblings? <laughs> no. Oh, no. It was so It was so funny when you would introduce the show and sounding like a grandpa. I'm thinking you're sounding like a dad. Oh, boy. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, Matt, how's that new book that you were reading the other day? Yeah, my wife's in the chat room. It's sitting on my shelf. I'm supposed to be reading like a chapter a night, like uh, some homework assignment. Waiting for the cl- I need interns to read the book for me, although my wife is listening. I'm going to get beat up tonight. <laughs> what is this for dads, uh, what to expect when you're expecting? Yeah, it's like, so you're male and your wife is pregnant and you're a moron. Here's a book. There you go. Yeah. In that order? In that order. <laughs> in that order. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So talk about like needing... Needing uh, peer support. Here I am at the nexus of what and what. That's all right. We're all muddling through that. Yes, exactly, exactly. Well, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. Thanks I know you've been listening me. the whole time. Um, I have. With a lot of compelling conversation going on. And, um, you know, your specialty, of course, and it goes back to, you know, this notion of, like, insane statistics that no one's ever crunched before to produce data that, like, throws everybody off and, you know, changes the way we think about things and redirects the direction of planetary alignment, whatever. You know, you've been doing this for a long time now. And, um, I have. And for, so for our listeners' sake, tell everybody, you know, um, are we screwed? <laughs> or are things are, is, has there been even the slightest bit of trend that we're winning the battle against the forces of evil? You know, a year ago when we talked about health reform and Obama had just gotten into office, everything was bright and exciting, and we were all so optimistic. And now it's been a really demoralizing year, and, and I'm a pretty, pretty much of an optimist in so many ways. But um, I realized uh, over the last few months I'm a health policy person and not a health politics person. And so I've really come to learn – more about me in in my profession and how I really ha- haven't had the stomach for what's going on in Washington and this devolution of what's come out of the health reform process and and looking at the sausage making which has just really been disheartening for me uh, on a lot of levels but I am hopeful um, so to answer your question are we screwed um, it used to I used to say it, the folks on Medicare were about the only ones who weren't going to be screwed but even, but now I'm thinking even they're going to get screwed by this uh this health reform package where now the public option is in the guise of enrolling uninsured people into Medicare which already screws the doctors out of uh, fair payments so um heart and hospitals as well so hard to say um, hard times before good times, I think, just like the recession. And I'm an economist, so, you know, we're the dismal scientists. I hate to bring everyone down. But I think, you know, the hopeful news is you have Helogica here, which is doing some great work in terms of getting people information they need to empower themselves to enroll in trials, other things. 
And then you have Susanna Fox again with information telling us that people are saying, I'm going to be empowered. I'm going to participate in my health care. You know, the system be damned. Uh, Medicare be damned. Health insurance be damned. And particularly for young people who really fall through the safety net of health insurance, people between 18 and 26, you know, in college, uh, first job, without insurance, whatever, you've got to get online and learn how to access health services, cheaper drugs. Uh, if you are newly diagnosed with cancer, all the great drug companies, all the companies who have uh, exciting cancer drugs have programs to, for access for people who aren't insured or, or who, are, who are underinsured. So the use of the Internet is key when you uh, don't have coverage or, or when you have uh, coverage with lots of holes in it. Well, I want to go back to my first comment when we started the show, and I was talking to JL and, and Ed over here, which is that, you know, it took, it took about 10 years for sort of the consumer culture using the Internet to influence the corporate infrastructure in this country. It's changed marketing trends. It's changed, you know, advertising analytics. It's changed ROI. There, there's such a different variable when you're dealing with the government and pharmaceutical industries is there a, 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 a precipice that we will eventually reach where the health 2.0 can empower the consumer movement enough to the fact where it will influence and change that other infrastructure? I think um, it's working from the bottom up in terms of what I call health citizens, which are consumer slash people, health citizens, empowered people, pushing up from the grassroots, and then some sage, smart companies um, who look at health the way they looked at green 10 years ago, green as a sustainability issue, and now health is a sustainability issue. And here I'm going to use the word sustainability in two ways. One, for the planet, like green, uh, look at the gro growth of diabetes, diabetes and obesity around the world, not just here, but in South America and in many parts of Europe now. And then sustainability from a corporate profitability standpoint, which is that a lot of companies look at their labor force and see that more and more people are becoming, if not obese, extremely overweight, which then leads to disability, presenteeism, absenteeism problems, and, of course, diabetes, heart disease, lots of other chronic problems. So you are seeing companies like Pitney Bowes, FedEx, the companies that got involved in early wellness, now in a second generation of wellness and employee assistance, looking at really targeting how can we help our employees, partner with our employees and the health system to improve health so that they're more productive at work and we make more money and everybody wins. So I'm, I'm hopeful that what happened with the green movement, which now is embraced even in, you know, I was at Target the other day and I was buying dishwashing liquid, one of the glamorous parts of my life. And everything, <laughs> everything has to do with, like, green now in the, in the dishwashing liquid department. Yes. So um, it, it's wild. And I see health uh, being driven that way as well, even in places, dare I say, like Walmart. And when Walmart starts making, which they do now, about 35% of revenues from the health and beauty aisles, and that includes pharmacy, then a third of their money is coming out of health, broadly defined. They have, even have organic food aisles now. So even Walmart's getting this issue of health as a sustainability issue. And that is a very hopeful sign. When Walmart gets it, that can move the needle. Right, but that also opens up a larger conversation, which isn't specifically about the, the online component. Jack and I were on Sirius Dr. Radio last week um, talking mm -hmm. about nutrition and mm -hmm. how we live in a culture that has its own subculture of sort of grotesquerie and, and, yeah. and gluttony and the fact that they have to put calories on the menus in New York City and it doesn't mm -hmm. dissuade people on the large part from ordering a double Big Mac or whatever. Like, how is it? I mean, it's, again, we're going into a whole different category here, but do we really have to incentivize people to be healthy when that should be a natural instinct, or are people just nurture is taking over for nature, and we're just growing into a society of too much plenty? And yeah. we, we, I'll just conclude with this last little ironic coincidence. We were talking on the show about how, you know, 15 years ago, the sli a size of a slice of pizza was like two-thirds 
or half of what the average pizza slice is today. And like the corn pops, when you buy corn pops in the like the mini cereal packs, you know they come in twelve packs. They're like twice the size that they were fifteen years ago. <laughs> How does that trend? And it's definitely a trend, and it's a tidal wave trend. How does that really interplay with with the reality check of of putting better practices into our into being you know good citizens of health? Well, I th- I think um, food is health now. I know uh, you and I I think uh, agree when we define health pretty broadly the way the World Health Organization defines it, which is that balance between physical, spiritual. Um, all different aspects of health. And if you look at um, the health engagement barometer that Edelman uh, pioneered last year, and they're going into their second year of doing it now, they found that individual Americans define health broadly, including even what their personal financial health is, because that feeds into their mental health, their sleeplessness or ability to sleep. Just think about what the recession has done to our sleeping habits. So things like sleep and food really do feed into into our health. This, the, the, this issue of the supersizing of America, absolutely, we have to retrain um, our palates and what we think is value. So the, the old definition of you know value meal, you would go to McDonald's or Burger King and order the biggest thing for the lowest amount of money. You know that just doesn't compute when it comes to health. So the issue now of nudging, the issue of the nudge and incentivizing people to do the right thing, the way we incent people to invest in 401k pro- programs at employers where people are lucky enough to still have employer matches, which doesn't happen so often uh, this year because of the recession. But the way, you know, an employee match, an employer match would incent you to put a dollar in because your employer would put another 20 or 30 cents in. Right. The way some people want to donate kidneys because it makes them feel good. Yeah. You can go to the book Nudge by Sunstein and Thaler. We've got to retool ourselves, and for many Americans especially, it's going to take money, moral suasion, a variety of, of tools. And we really do have to retool the way the way we eat and think about value, um, food, being full, and all of that in a larger context. And we're, we're not nearly there yet. I, I'm afraid we're going to have to hurt even more to get everybody thinking about the lifeboat, the community, the commons, unfortunately. Uh, Jack, get a question? Yeah, I was just going to say, um, you know, speaking about incentives and stuff, like, if you ever watch the TV show The Biggest Loser, yeah. they, they have these contestants that, you know, weigh in at 400-plus pounds at the beginning of the season. And the guy who just won it, uh, I think it was yeah. last week, he lost 239 pounds awesome. over that, that, like, three, five months or whatever. Right. And he eliminated so many health problems that he had, mm-hmm. you know, like, mm-hmm. like the sleeping and the diabetes and, like, all the stuff that right. comes with obesity. The sleep apnea, right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And and yeah. and on the finale, they had um, this young woman named Shay, who I think is like 31 or so, who was the heaviest contestant they've ever had at 469 pounds. Whoa. She wow. She lost she lost a ton of weight, but she still has a long way to go. And yeah. Sub Subway, you know, home of the you know the five dollar healthy sandwich, mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. is incentivizing her to come back to the season finale of the next one, which is in May. And they're going to give her a thousand dollars for every pound that she loses between now and the beginning of May. Wow! So if well, she that loses, concentrate the mind. Yeah. If so, <laughs> so you know, and and that's what triggered you know uh, this thought in me about yeah. when you said the incentives because yeah. she could lose two hundred pounds. Yep. And yeah. make two hundred thousand dollars. So like all you she know, has to do is just get enough money to cover the next few months of living, and then just completely right. dedicate herself to her health and fitness. Right. Yeah. And and, yeah. and have a huge payout. You know, one other aspect of The Biggest Loser before um, I'm looking at the time that's really important and that's a positive way for me to to leave you is that they have an online community where consumers pay 20 bucks a month or a quarter. I'm not sure the exact number, but people are paying out-of-pocket money to be part of The Biggest Loser online to befriend each other, to talk about diets, to talk about other things like American Idol or whatever. But The Biggest Loser has really attracted a lot of people, and they've, they've tapped into something that's really important in social networking, in using an entertainment vehicle to help motivate people. Because I think health should also be fun. 
and the way you get health instructions in a lot of ways isn't fun. And even if you get cancer or even even breast cancer, HIV, other, you can get information packaged that's so much more uh, motivating and, dare I say, entertaining and, and, and interesting and intriguing uh, versus the way that we used to get it out of medical journals when you guys went to medical schools. So I think in the consumerization of healthcare, we're starting to see um, an influence of more new entrants in health informatics, health information online, who get entertainment. And as we look at more and more mobile health applications, mHealth, we see Verizon and AT&T and IBM and Vodafone just in the last two weeks all saying we're getting into this remote monitoring and remote health um, and mobile health uh, applications. Those are consumer-facing brands. They understand how to package this stuff. And, and to get back to Matthew's uh, question a couple questions ago when those kinds of companies consumer facing companies start getting into health uh, to partner with health providers and other play, traditional players in health that's when I think we really see the magic happen uh, that marries consumers to, to exciting content that then changes behaviors whether it's food or uh, taking your drugs on time whatever well, Jack has a final question or comment. Yeah, it's just a comment. Um, talking about how society is being trained to think more, uh, you know, health to be more health conscious and such. Is just look at what the Wii has done. You know, mm. with like the Wii Bowling and the Wii Fit and like all these things yep. where you know for years it was like you know uh, America's youth is getting fatter because they're on the couch playing video games all day and eating Twinkies right. and whatever. And now it's like they're encouraging kids to you know be active with the Wii and like if you are going to do some video gaming, then then do the stuff that gets you moving around right. and get off the couch. Right. Yeah, I agree. Health health e games. This whole category is really exploding, and it's another exciting area to keep your eye on because it's very real, it's fun, and, hey, it's getting people moving. So so there is hope. Yes, I don't want to leave you uh, in the lurch about that, but it's hope where, health, where consumers, health citizens are saying, I'm going to do this. Sisters and brothers doing it for themselves with their doctors. If the doctors aren't going to get on the board, a lot of us are going to change docs and go to somebody else who will partner with us. And I think that's something for physicians to, to uh, be mindful of as folks are paying more and more out of pocket for co-pays or even whole retail fees for, for health care, that we're in the driver's seat now and consumers do have choices. Well, once again, Jane, you have made me look dumb, and I really appreciate that because that's a very hard Never. thing to do. It is. You are, you are a sexy man. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I can't wait to see two smaller versions of you hatch in May. I oh, my know. goodness. Oh, my goodness. But, Jane, you, you are a rock star. You know so much about so much, and you are always a phenomenal contributor to this broadcast. Thank you, my friend. So I will be in touch. We'll talk soon, and uh, happy Hanukkah, happy holidays. Be well. Happy right. everything, guys. Thanks Bye. a lot. Thanks for All coming right. on. Jane Saras and Khan, returning champion from Health Populi on the Stupid Cancer Show. Hey, Matt. Yes, sir. Just between friends, I actually have an embarrassing story about The Biggest Loser. I, when that show first came on, I applied to be on it. I wrote this really heartfelt essay and you know, went through like a lot of hoops to, to apply to be on the show, and I got a call from the producers that basically rejected my application because they were like, I'm sorry, sir, you don't understand. This is a weight loss show. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, the biggest social loser. Yeah, like, dude, I, I, I thought like this is it. I'm gonna, you know, get on TV. I'm gonna He's meet gonna some, be somebody. I'm gonna meet some girls. You know, I might get a phone number or something. And they were like, no, dude, this is a weight loss show. The biggest loser is not what you think like, it is. Naven R. Johnson. I'm in the phone book. <laughs> I'm somebody now. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, so don't don't tell anybody about that. It's really embarrassing. Oh, well, I'm just glad you you didn't announce it on national radio. Wait, what? <laughs> ah, well, another good show. Yes, that was uh, very informative. Very good it makes show. Makes me want to go exercise. I think I'll run to the subway now. <laughs> run to the subway to get a subway sandwich no. or run to the subway to leave me and get out of here? No, to leave you and get out of here. But ironically, there's not a subway between me and the subway, but there is a McDonald's that's open 24 hours. Oh, so. no. Oh, boy. So I might get my two Big Macs and two vanilla shakes uh. for the ride. All right. Well, with that said, thank you, everybody. Uh, really quick, before I just go to the closing sequence, anyone listening to the show, we are starting to program for 2010. If you have any topic suggestions that you would like to hear us talk about in January, February, March, April, please 
Submit your comments to stupidcancer at i2y.com. That's stupidcancer at i2y.com. And let us know what you would like to hear on this show. If you have any guests in mind, any authors, any bloggers that you think would be credible guests, uh, send them our way. We are here for you. And uh, we're very excited to uh, begin programming Season 6 of the radio show. So with that, it is now time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, Internet. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. All right, folks. That's tonight's show. I hope you have as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. I'd like to thank our guests, Dr. Jean-Luc Neptune, Edward Chin, Jane Saracen Count, Susanna Fox, in our chat room, Bruma Bats, and Giassi Snugs. Yay. You guys rock. Next week's show, Nutrition Part 2, with Kim Martin, 26-year young adult survivor of Hodgson's lymphoma, certified nutrition consultant, fitness trainer. Rebecca Katz, cancer advocate, author of The Cancer Fighting Kitchen, and Dr. Alejandro Junger, director of integrative medicine at Lenox Hill, author of Clean, and founder of Clean TV. If you missed any of our previous broadcasts, Check out the archives at stupidcancershow.com or subscribe to our podcast at itunes.i2y.com. If you don't already have Carol Rosenthal's book, The Insider's Guide to Cancer in Your 20s and 30s, it is available wherever books are sold. Remember, if it's not stupid, it's not cancer. We'll see you all back here next week, my friends, live from the chemo deck. Jack Buffard, Captain Stubing, and I wish you all a great week. Go to bed, Dory. Fuck her out. out.